This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. You know, I read the um, New Green Deal right now. That it was basically three pages or so, and it is interesting. Um, you know, the U.S. Department of Energy, and part of my studies for that, stated that. I recall, I think it was like 36% of energy produced for buildings nowadays uh, comes from petroleum and um, 11% comes from solar. And a lot of, a lot of that conversation of the increase of, of solar or energy based, renewable energy based to, to supplement this um, is great and all, but uh, natural gas and petroleum still accommodate over, over, I think 70% of the power generation for, for energy for buildings at this moment. Wow. And there's nothing stating the reduction of those powers at all in, in this deal. And they can't do that, I guess, politically. But the reality is, is the, the bridge in that gap from 11% <laughs> to cover the 70% for the existing buildings and in, in commercial real estate, it's, it's a lift, man. It's a lift. Hi there. I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell, and on this episode, I welcome Lance Amato. Lance is a licensed architect in New York, and he is a partner at Kanoa Supply, where he leads up the building code, zoning research, and compliance for the company. So this episode really centers around the energy code, or let's let's actually pluralize that. Let's say energy codes. And you'll hear why I'm pluralizing that in this episode. It's really about the sorry state of energy code adoption and compliance and lack of consistency across the United States. And that's really where Lance and I get into the meat of the discussion, because through his research, he's been exposed to this mess. And it's something that all architects are forced to deal with. And it's really interesting how this problem hasn't been solved, not only by the jurisdictions themselves, but by technology. This really does seem like a problem that can be solved by technology. And it sounds like that's exactly what Lance and company are hopeful of doing. A recent tweet that Lance sent out since the recording of this episode, he says, who wants to write a new energy code with me? Not even kidding. Remember, municipalities can adopt any code they choose. Currently, most choose the one that covers 95% of the country. Interesting, right? Because uh, 95% of the country is not in the same climate zone. Anyway, I had a great conversation with Lance, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So without any further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Lance Amato. Lance, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. And just real quick before we we jump into the problem statement that we're going to discuss today regarding uh, energy regulations and things like that and, and like what we're facing as an industry, can you give everybody here a little bit of a background on what you guys are doing at Kanoa and maybe what's different about that? Of course. So Kanoa in itself uh, is a company um, who is trying to cut across the lines of design and construction for clients looking to scale um, at quite a pace, approaching in such a way where we put at the forefront sustainability and transparency in the methodology of that process, um, utilizing technology and automation to do so. Mm. Uh, a lot of the studies we're doing now uh, in the development of our platform is based on the reliability and the environmentalism of the products and the, the methodologies that we use uh, to build environments in the United States right now, as well as the backup data uh, it's required in regulatory code as well as zoning code uh, to install and implement adaptive reuse across the United States. And there lies the problem that we're about to talk about. <laughs> well, it's exactly. it's interesting exactly. to me to think about how big of a, a job that you guys have taken on here. And I mean, you guys have designed this kind of set of constraints or the, the business upon which you want to build upon this set of constraints. And so how did... Did it start out like that? Did it? Did Kanoa start out with this big of a of an I don't know perspective on what what needed to be done, or did it start in a different path and then you've pivoted into this? It started. No, we we it started this way. Okay, I'd say the inspiration um, for the creation of the company, as well as um, the like minded uh, mindset of all the the partners and the team there, they all came on board with that pure mission uh, at heart. We are 
we are overbuilding, we are building cheaply, we are building without an understanding of the impact we put in the environment. And we're not, and frank, frankly, we're actually, we're discarding um, very functional buildings yeah. and commodities to build new. Right. And leaving those 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 spaces relatively empty and turning into uh, desolate spaces. So I think everyone that joined Kanoa uh, wholeheartedly believed that we, we need to change. Uh, and we need to change at a rapid pace, at a very, very uh, grand scale. And we need to do everything we can to support that. Yeah. And you obviously come from a history of practice, leading a, a rather large team. So drawing from that experience, I mean, what, what caused you to want to make the shift? Was it really kind of that purpose-driven mission of this bigger ideal that needed to be tackled and, and nobody else was doing it? Or what, what convinced you that you needed to be involved? I think it's a latter part. Um, I come from a very traditional practice. I spent 20 years uh, as an architect, uh, first as a project architect and escalating into a principal of, of a company. And and as such, you know, leading and, and trying to be a, a kind of a mentor and coach in the development of all the people within it. And at some point, I'd say a couple of years back, there was a drain on um, the practice of how we constructed and the impact that I was encouraging on mm-hmm. on that. We were just building, 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 building. Mm-hmm. The answer is always a building, right? A new one. That's all it is. And uh, I looked back and there there was a statement made uh, a couple of years back about uh, a lot of the spaces that, that um, I had a part in designing and constructing that you know, I'd say a proportion of those spaces that we were building were being demolished. Mm-hmm. The, the pre-built movement as a whole uh, was a huge wave, I'd say, you know, 2015, 2016. We were constructing spaces for a client that was unknown. Mm-hmm. And that client um, would then uh, basically move in and say, oh, it doesn't meet my, meet my program here. It doesn't meet my program here. Let's demolish this. Let's build right. that. Let's right. construct that. Let's throw that away. Throw that away. It started getting to me at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, come around 2018, 2019, I just started reconsidering the impact I was I was, uh, I was was doing on, the, on um, this overall profession. And I, I really really wanted to uh, affect change, find a new way to do things. Mm-hmm. This is where kind of uh, I was introduced um, into the aspects of uh, prefabrication, modular construction, when it comes to interior environments mm-hmm. and how it applies uh, to commercial interiors specifically. And I started getting very educated on that approach. And everyone at the company came on board in the same process. It, it was a group of, of individuals that kind of just was fed up with mm-hmm. the way we were sprawling out in this industry and wanted to change. How did you guys connect? How did you guys find each other with this kind of like purpose? A lot of us came from a similar uh, experience um, working at scale with WeWork. Mm. And so um, the majority of the company as it currently stands right now either worked at or worked with WeWork um, in their massive scaling plans. And so yeah. we built hundreds of spaces globally right at a very very fast pace and uh, i would say that you know we constructed sometimes um with that sustainability in mind but um we had to do so to meet a certain timeline and milestone now you've you've kind of left the traditional architectural profession behind and not completely you're, you're still connected to it but as far as like the outlook and, and your purpose what do you think man this is really turning into an interview show all i'm doing is asking you questions but this is fascinating stuff I'm wondering, like, what do you see as holding more architects back from making this decision to actually care about this stuff? Because, because there's, there's doing something about it, to me, which is actually caring about it. And then there's a lot of people who are just kind of apathetic to it. And like, if it happens, I, somebody, I hope somebody else is taking care of that, I hope. They could still kind of have this outlook, but I don't think that if they're doing something about it, that they truly care about it. So what do you think is holding people back from that? You know, it's interesting you say that. I don't think anything is holding people back from this. I mm-hmm. think people genuinely do care about what's going on. I think a, a lot of people within the profession are just overburdened with the day-to-day ritual of trying to maintain balance in, in this profession, the architectural practice. There's so much called upon architects these days to maintain businesses, bring in new business, ensure that documentation is consistent and just constant, 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 constant. Yeah. Feed that machine. 
it is and and whether they want to be called a machine or not it's it's this overall process that's just absolutely just over incumbent on 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 professionals right now that the opportunity to actually take the chance to go out there and and uh, try to connect with other individuals that are trying to do the same thing it's just it's it's very limited and in addition I'm I'm an architect myself so when I say this you know I'm also uh, ragging on myself but every architect wants to um, reinvent the wheel mm-hmm. every single person um, if everyone tried to reinvent the wheel together <laughs> and actually yeah. um, work as a team to really really push this forward then I think it might change I, I hear of coalitions um, here and I see them as well but they're just you know voluntary coalitions they're 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 people that meet you know i'd say inconsistently to hit a goal or such right there is no overacting movement um of the profession to change that's aia right that's there every you didn't actually roll your eyes but but yeah you kind of did i, I did I, I nodded my head <laughs> right <laughs> listen I, I respect a lot for what the aia does yeah. um well everybody kind of looks looks at the aia to to do something about this but but they're not right. So, and it, they is us, right? The the members of it. So, mm-hmm. um, and and yeah, you're right. I did frame the question in a cynical manner because I I do feel like m- most people don't feel like this is their challenge because they have so many challenges already that they're fighting on a day to day basis, um, and it really kind of takes somebody to step back from that day to day, reevaluate the actual situation that we find ourselves in that is much longer term and longer you know long game kind of thinking. Rather than that day-to-day, project-to-project approach that we find ourselves kind of stuck in, right? It definitely feels like a, a stickiness to that. There is. Listen, I was stuck in that rent also. Yeah. Um, I cared a lot about what we're doing. I just, it was number 79 on the top thousand things I had to do. And right. I, it was impossible to tackle. <laughs> numbers priority number 79 out of priority 1000 priorities which <laughs> which means there are there are no priorities when there's that many it's hard to yeah so now you're the chief compliance officer at Kanoa what does that mean uh so basically my role uh at Kanoa is the assessment understanding of of the how and what we do in deploying and designing space as well as the project rollout uh, if it does indeed uh, meet certain compliance requirements for municipal building code, uh, energy code calculations, um, fire retardancy, things of that nature. The products we're building out are very specific to design and deployment of space. Mm-hmm. So we want to ensure that everything we suggest the products we're building out that are designing all uh, fall within the, the the guidelines of every single municipality across the United States and and hopefully at some point uh, globally. And I say every single municipality, it's because if you were to catalog the quantity of municipalities in the United States, it would probably be about 30,000. Wow. No exaggeration. And so we said we were going to start with the problem statement, and now, now we're going to actually start with the problem statement, because what you it. just said leads right into that, right? And so what is the problem with <laughs> trying to enforce compliance among 30,000 municipalities because they're all the same right they all use the exact same measures and do they right do they (laughs) well i am glad we have a you know 45 minutes to talk about this Mm -hmm. (laughs) so this is an interesting problem and it's a problem that honestly i was relatively unfamiliar with myself Uh, you know i used to position myself as a practitioner that understood what it meant to do work nationally yeah, how many states did you do work in? I mean, to give give people uh, an example of that, I would say I've done work in fifteen states. Okay, yeah, I mean that's mo- like I live in California. I I have done work in California, and California is a big state. There's a lot of variation in the state alone, right? But we also, mm-hmm. on some level, are kind of we leading the nation in many of these kind of energy code and compliance kind of things. But at the same time, like working in 15 different states, I'm sure that you kind of already had some inkling into what you were up against by branching. But I did. Yeah. I mean, to be totally transparent, I really thought I did. I came in such a level of confidence and, and truly, truly until I stepped out of that, that like we talked about before, that constant churn and studied uh, what it truly was when it came down to, code and uh, municipal studies across the United States, I, w- I was quite shocked. For, mm-hmm. for the 15 states I, I did work in, 
Um, of those 15 states, I've worked in major cities of those 15 states. And so when one of the, one of the largest um, uh, sprints we did last year was um, assessing, as it currently stands, uh, around 1,000 municipalities across mm. the United States. So we're 1,000 municipalities down. Um, and the building and energy codes, those municipalities um, adopt and study. I thought, this man, this would be easy. It's going to be super easy. I mean, what are there, like five or six codes that these these uh, these municipalities utilize? I was I was in for a shock. And so I did this research, started digging in state by state, uh, city by city. And I started realizing um, something super interesting, that even if you're probably 15 minutes away from each other, these municipalities are separated. There is a, a, a very large variation in every municipality's adoption of code and really, really specifically energy code. Mm. And it was surprising to me. And it, it's, it's shocking is, you know, you're, you're a professional on the, the West coast. I'm a professional on the East coast. You say everyone is um, up to par and meeting some level of, of modern energy codes or building codes these days. And that's, that's far from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, some, some of these, uh, these cities, they're utilizing um, energy code from 2003 or 2000. Wow. And just to give you a frame of reference of uh, what that actually means is in 2000 incandescent light bulbs and the CFL complex fluorescent light bulb mm-hmm. was the thing. Yeah. Everyone was just basically, you know, taking out those incandescents and screwing in those CFLs right. to meet that level of study. Yeah. And you would be surprised at the numbers that I saw, the amount of municipalities um, that were utilizing energy code from 2003, 2006, 2009 was, was very, very shocking. Wow. I, I definitely pride myself from being in, a, in a, an area in a space that I say is pushing forward the most up-to-date codes, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. But I was very naive because the majority of the United States does not. Right. And, um, even even more surprising, uh, those that don't actually um, adopt the most current codes that will help their surrounding region as well as the United States um, follow a more sustainable methodology are those that are probably the most impacted by climate change these days. Wow. And it was absurdly frustrating. I actually got so frustrated during my study, I, I, I spoke to my colleagues uh, and I just had to have a vent session. I said, this yeah. is the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced. I'm, I'm actually dumbfounded and shocked yeah. um, by what's going on. Wow. So one of the other things I think that you, you've ultimately kind of written an article just to kind of expose this process that you went through and posted it on Medium. And I'll put a link to that in our show notes so other people can read it. And it's it's very enlightening. And I think one of the things that you point out in there that is also shocking is just the... compliance is not black or white it's kind of like they're offering you the ability to comply there may be some incentives sometimes there may not be but at the same time even if they have adopted something more strict or they're asking you to target a higher threshold uh, above a baseline then there's still it's just kind of just guidelines in many cases there is and let's let's break it down i mean let's talk about how that process works for a couple of minutes and Mm -hmm. so it truly is. There, there is no federal guideline on building code. Um, there are widely adopted building codes across the United States. The most familiar one is that of the IBC, International Building Code. Mm-hmm. It's created um, by a very familiar um, organization on <laughs> your yeah, show right. um, that, that creates a lot of those types of, um, of uh, guidelines. IBC being International Building Code and IECC are two metrics that that many states across the United States um, use uh, and enforce as their their suggested um, state adopted code. And the reason I'm saying states clearly is because there is a very big break between what the states adopt as their code and what a city can adopt or wants mm-hmm. to adopt mm-hmm. in their code. Meaning. You can be, in, and by the way, this is not a specific example, but you can be uh, in the state of Arkansas and have a specific um, state adopted code, but you can be uh, in a city within the state of Arkansas and not have to adopt that code. Mm-hmm. You can use any type of code book you want. You can use 
1986. Mm. You can use a different codebook. You mm. can use anything you, you generally find the premise for what you want to utilize. Mm -hmm. It is um, only a handful of states in the United States um, that consolidate and create coalitions to have a universally enforced building code that every municipality uh, adopts. Mm -hmm. But they don't have to, they cannot forcefully do it. Mm. It is U.S. law that every municipality is allowed to use their own interpretation of building code for building in their area. Let's dig a little deeper into that. I mean, what is the incentive for anybody to change? Because there, there is this bigger perspective that it seems most people are not taking, and there is probably a lot of incentive to keep things the way they are because that's what they know, right? So these forces are in tension constantly. And yeah. typically, I would say that when you're talking about people who are actually working at these municipalities and their education and the age of that education, the age of themselves, I mean, typically you find some older generations working in the building departments. I wonder how many young architects and people who are educated in environmental design or anything like that or urban planning end up in a city planning or building department just because the numbers are very few. I'm Even mm -hmm. here in, in my town, there's probably five people working in there, right? And when they are there, they're there for a really long time. Absolutely. And they're busy too, putting out those fires every single day um, because the projects keep rolling in and they keep them busy. And so like, how do we deal with that? How do we hit the big giant reset button on so much of this stuff? And that, that to me is, that's, that's a daunting thing to think about, but it seems like uh, you guys are kind of up for that. Or maybe you're fully up for that. I don't know. I think we're all up for it, but yeah. you need the, uh, to hit that big reset button, you need a, a big player to have that button <laughs> to be able to push. Or a global crisis, then, right? Not, not that there like isn't that, one right? of those. Yeah. Not, not that that isn't uh, at the forefront um, that we're all getting drilled in their head. The reality is this has been going on for 20 years. Mm -hmm. We've been pushing this message. Um, one of my, um, my earliest uh, jobs was um, at a company that I think was at the forefront of this, this kind of movement of encouraging education and sustainability. Uh, and that company was um, FXFAL. But I think, you know, we're at a point now where we really, really need to truly enforce this and push this forward. The, mm -hmm. the great success that states of California and New York have had is they may have politely or <laughs> impolitely stated that you have to do this. Like we, we are doing this together. Mm -hmm. We have to band together and push this forward. Um, the coalitions and, and, and uh, um, committees that the state of California has used to constantly encourage adapt and um, evolve energy codes specifically is fantastic. And I posted that on my, my website as well. Um, my link as well, because it's, it's really enlightening. You guys are at the forefront of this and it's also, I would never say this, but I, it's really frustrating to think that uh, in one statement, you can say California is at the forefront of building code, um, ADA code, energy code. And in the same statement, California is really hard to build in. Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard to build in because you have, you should be building that way. Right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah. No, I, and I can tell you from from my direct experience working with architects and engineers as new code cycles come out, the eye rolling and the uh, just the oh my god, can you can you see what they're doing to us? And and there is a ton of pushback, and maybe it maybe it stays in the conference room. I don't know, but it definitely like people aren't going along with this super willingly, at least a, a, a large segment. And and again, I'm coming from a public work standpoint where it's low bid, right? It's mm -hmm. there. There's a lot of constraints working against you when it comes to that kind of stuff, and it is hard to build. But things are getting built, and they're getting built really well. And so it it is a model showing that it it does work and it can happen. If there was a call for um for the design profession to create their own standard of design excellence, mm -hmm. follow a model that they enforce in every single one of their own firms. Um, whether it be the newest model of building code or energy code, anything that that positions themselves as going above and beyond, I think it's the time. Time yeah. is now. Just being in 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 compliance um, with your current state guidelines is just not good enough anymore. Yeah, you have to you have to raise that bar. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how 
our profession has not tried to bite that off and really take it on as a whole because it does seem like now with technology kind of being this potential way to make that happen that there isn't a group that is or at least a committee or some a subset of the AIA or whatever it needs to be to take that on it but but from your research and your story it sounds like that's a a bigger task than anybody actually knows how big it is it is it's a bigger task than 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 most people know and honestly i, I think there's other like-minded folks that are in this technology field these days um that are trying to achieve the same and that is to to put at the forefront transparency of where we are and try to find means to enhance and uh and and frankly develop it for the better i think a lot of people are scared by that because they they view it as a scorecard that they're going to be on the losing side of it's going to expose that i could see that true i mean when it comes to that that exposure i mean our position and our stance right now is um well, you should better your product. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. should be better. It's you kind of you kind of nailed it that um, professional services as a whole is lowest bid, lowest bid, lowest bid. Mm-hmm. Um, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> I know it's it's tough. It's set up from the beginning. And um, I've been put in the situation where when it's optional to add in environmental features or sustainable features to your designs or recyclability or reclamation, things of that nature. Uh, it's often lost in the lowest bit. Yeah. It's, it's very rare for people to take a position and say, this is the way we work. Yeah. Well, either you like it or not. Yeah. And there might be more opportunity, at least for now in the, the tech companies to say, this is the way we work. This is our product. This is, this is how we do it. And yeah. um, if you don't like it, well, tough, because this is our mission. This is what we want to do. Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, ArcIT. Let's start this off with a short story. When Zach, a principal architect at CSDA Design Group, came to ArcIT, his network was hit with a ransomware attack and had been down for going on seven days, and his current IT support provider was telling him that it should be back up any day now without making any progress on getting them back up and running. When he came to ArcIT for help, They worked to recover his firm's most important project files first so he could be back up and running because they understood there are deadlines to hit. Zach's firm has now been with ArcIT for going on a year, and he couldn't be happier. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills, not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms, and their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack, and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or, in some cases, even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to getarcit, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. You guys are a pending B Corp, which I think is is mm-hmm. interesting and, and it kind of speaks to what, what you just talked about. Um, I, I wanted to, before we get into down that that rabbit hole is a lot of clients out there don't want this stuff 
and they explicitly state that. And and the reason, and again, I'm coming from a public work kind of standpoint. Right. There's many K twelve education clients. There's many, well, whatever the whatever the public works projects are that you're working on, where they say, you know, they they, they deal with campuses. They have a lot of building stock. They have an aging set of assets already. Now you're b- building new ones. Higher energy code compliance, et cetera, et cetera, requires new technology. New technology is different than what they have when they want maybe consistency in their mechanical systems across their entire portfolio of buildings, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like it's easy for them. And so the easiest answer is for them to say no. And as the architect serving their client can speak to the benefits and the features and the long term and all those things, but ultimately the client needs to pay for it. Now, a, a municipality like California makes it easier for architects, right? Because it's a code requirement to hit certain levels. And so it naturally kind of raises this bar and it just takes that part of the conversation away. But there, like you said, there's so many holes in this still. And if the answer is always a new building and somebody doesn't want to go after this stuff in their new building, that's I mean, just symptomatically why this is taking so long to change, right? And so are you guys thinking about that? Because you guys, as a new company, as a startup, get to say, this is how we work, like take it or leave it. Whereas I think firms that have been around for 100 years, it's way harder for them to say that. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I may um, I may position that one with a two statements. The first one is, I think design professions definitely kind of backing out and, and understanding um how to answer that question. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's too expensive. What, what would you say? I'd say probably 80% of the times I go, oh, okay, we understand the client doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. There are organizations specifically created to incentivize companies for constructing to a level of sustainability. Right. And their level of engagement goes post-construction to pre-lease. Mm-hmm. There, there are so many out there right now all across the United States in various regions that work with um, various energy officials, politicians, um, and municipal code uh, departments to frankly make this easier for everyone. It's not just uh, hitting that bar of code. The problem resides is that it's really difficult as a design firm, again, to be educated in those organizations and to even encourage being part of the process or, or encouraging the process of Hey, maybe uh, in terms of signing your lease, you might want to pursue a green lease. Mm -hmm. What is that? Oh, wait. Okay. Let me connect you to the person that can do that. Right. Or the the organizations and specifically in New York, NYSERDA. So you don't want to do it because it's too expensive. Well, let me contact um, our local NYSERDA representative that might be able to specifically tell you how we can make it work for you. Yeah. There's there's never that gap. And definitely there's ways to go kind of like navigate that. Um, and I know specific examples with the type of work that we've done, like the local, you know, Southern California Edison does savings by design and you can work mm-hmm. with them to identify and, and basically you're, you're doing a lot of energy modeling and things up front to show the ROI on things and basically create a pathway for clients to understand or owners to understand where their break-even point is and and again, it kind of refocuses the conversation away from first costs to the long term, which is what these buildings are purposefully built to to last and, mm-hmm. and stand that test of time. So there's additional funding that can be available through incentives. Uh, there's also grants that that people can go after for water usage and and you know things like that. But that does take additional time, and when you sell time as your main way of doing business. And that is not kind of a line item that shows up as a value add necessarily, at least early on when those contracts are being figured out. It is, it's still like, it's such a complicated math it problem is. here. Yeah, it is. And one of the unique things we do here at Cano is we are, we are focused in, in adaptive reuse. So we don't do uh, base building construction. We are diving into existing uh, structures and facilities and finding new life for it. That seems like a great place to start because, yeah, there's so exactly. there's so much out there. We hear it now. We're reading articles about it. Um, the adaptive reuse of a shopping mall mm-hmm. or a retail floor, things of that nature. Um, the company's uh, goal at this moment is to 
try to assist in visualization um, and adaptability of, of spaces and actually lean into um, creating or recreating those spaces. So they, they live the term of the lease of this client. Mm -hmm. And then it actually is perfect. Um, it doesn't need to be changed uh, with its physical construction or infrastructure for the lease of the next client and mm -hmm. the next client and mm -hmm. the next client building for 30 years instead of three. Mm -hmm. It's a big problem in general with, with buildings as a whole. There's been such a huge push in uh, amenitizing buildings or, or creating spaces um, that'll be great for the current uh, tenant for three years, for five years, and then they're gone. And yeah. then you have to recreate that idea right. for three to five years, and then they're gone. Yeah. And they're gone. And quite frankly, now's the opportunity to say, I have a building. It's currently an office building, but I actually, most importantly, I own a property and an asset. That asset should be developed and constructed for being sustainable for the next 30 years of flexibility for any type of program that I'm allowed to do in this area, instead of trying to create uh, a unique experience to entice tenants for uh, these short, short-term leases that, that uh, our country is going to experience uh, for the next at least 10 years. Yeah, I, I would assume that's a huge trend that you guys are seeing. So it sounds like you're going directly to the building owners and talking about their entire property as an asset and how to think about that more holistically rather than floor by floor or section by section. Yes, we go to property owners, we go to operator companies, we talk about um, their entire portfolio of assets, mm -hmm. not a specific space. We want to help them scale in the right pace. And we want to ensure that the environments that, you know, we encourage and suggest are constructed for absolute um, adaptability and flexibility with as little construction and impact as possible. So the items that are deployed and installed within our spaces can be shifted around, moved around, um, disassembled, moved out with simplicity of construction. Mm -hmm. um, that's a very important um, asset. And we will dive into uh, working out the details of uh, going to a ground floor retail space and saying this retail is, you know, 5,000 retail uh, uh, environment is not only good for another retail use, but it can be great for an office use or any other um, function that the current zoning code allows. Because hmm. the interesting thing here is, I mean, believe it or not, but the zoning code is, it, it's, it has some flexibility for the types of businesses that you can install mm -hmm. uh, on a property. The problem is, is that um, there's a, there's a misunderstanding or misinterpretation about, well, if you built a big box store, it's only good for another company that's a big box store. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. I mean, the case is that that big box store can be converted into something completely different. Oh yeah. It's a trampoline it's, park, right? <laughs> exactly. It could be. And yeah. it's the most frustrating thing I see nowadays is an empty big box store. And mm -hmm. then on the next lot over is a, um, a huge sprawl of homes that yeah. were reconstructed. Well, what's interesting about that is there's nobody trying to educate people who see that big box store on a day-to-day -day basis driving around town into what, it, what the potential is there. They just, because they don't see that potential. They see it as a big box store. And it doesn't seem like the building owners are taking that on. They put a sign up that says for lease. That's it. That's it. With a phone number on it. That's it. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. It, there, there is no true way to to understand and assess it. And um, I would even imagine that like building, like brokers don't really understand the potential there either. They're trying to kind of fit like for like, for like as fast as possible. Right. Because they run in the same scenario that we do. I mean, I think that uh, their job is to continually turn the wheel, mm -hmm. get new clients, sign those deals, right. push forward, push forward, push forward. Because if they don't, they'll fall off a cliff and that would be the end of it. Right. Are you doing any kind of showing people the potential, doing any kind of matchmaking or setting up any kind of service that would enable enable that kind of matchmaking to happen on the Kanoa side? Absolutely. One of, one of our core assets is our platform and our platform gives you the, the ability to assess a location, mm -hmm. um, identify that location and all its current uh, regulatory requirements, zoning code, building code, plumbing code, energy code. Uh, as well as identify potential new uses for that location. Mm, nice. um, it can be, and when I say location over building is because when we when we think about locations, your parking lot is 
just as good of an asset, especially these days, as it is the building. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. With with the encouragement of mobility and right. and um, you know mobile units, there's ways to amenitize or create new life and programs in those parking lots. It's amazing how how much parking lots came into play in the last six months too, right? Absolutely. With outdoor dining with pedestrian because there's a lot less cars and turning it into mm-hmm. outdoor space. And yeah, I don't think anybody really saw that coming. No one saw it coming except for uh, a handful. Yeah, uh, sure. A few of them are our clients, which we're very happy with. Uh, nice. But with that being said, once, once those locations are identified, we then pair up um, all the information, uh, the profile of that space with um, all the code requirements um, that that specific municipality has. And that, that goes in that whole research that, that um, I talked about earlier. We identify uh, the maximum use type, the types of egress and components. Um, I'd say uh, fire safety, distancing, things of that nature. Uh, and then, frankly, develop it into um, a program and an assessment that you, you we work with you on. So we take your program, we basically put it into uh, something we call Tether, which is an automated design tool to basically visualize this environment into its new life. So it's just kind of a step-by-step process of profile of a space, um, apply the, the appropriate codes, design the space um, to, to frankly understand what can be done there based on the program you need. And then at the conclusion, quite frankly, once you understand what you need in the space and what fits, work with us to, to frankly understand, assess, and, and um, procure those prefabricated units and modular units to install within your environment. So we, we try to do that kind of full stack approach. Um, everything we do is under the guise of environmentalism. So again, the profile space, the, 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 the aspect of um, code studies, it's all really focused on sustainability, energy studies. All the products we have have their unique kind of um, identifiers for their level of environmental impact, including carbon neutrality, things of that nature. Awesome. That's awesome. So when you guys go through kind of this it's not really a feasibility study, but it's more of like a proof that all of these rules can lead to an outcome that works for this particular client. And you guys are taking the different requirements from all these different municipalities into account. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have this assurance that, that it's going to work based on everything that you've collected and, and know. Is that kind of a live link between what these municipalities have adopted and where they're going with that? Or is that something that has to get changed and modified by the municipality and then it uploads into your system? Like how, how does it, how do you guys keep current with these 1000 municipalities that you already have in your database? Excellent question. Um, constant research, research and study. Yeah. And that's a really important question because Pretty manual, I would imagine. I, I, yeah, I wish we can say it'd be right. perfect. It's something we aspire to do. Yeah. It's, you know, we basically, or what are we a thousand done three three percent yeah right <laughs> maybe less or uh, of the way there right um the 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 way that uh, municipalities um i guess position their current regulatory rules it's very different in every single city mm-hmm. a lot of them are web-based um but the where they put it in their their kind of uh web page or portal is in a different link or somewhere else or elsewhere couldn't you just flip this whole model though and have this as a resource for them at some point so that they it's all in one place absolutely and there there are organizations that um are portals for code so um municicode is a huge one Mm. um there's a kind of a handful of other ones that um are straight links and some that don't but generally we want to be at a point where it all this is basically pre-registered and and automated and updates yeah but for but for now the, the manual studies, um, the manual data collection is kind of the first step uh, in that process. Yeah. It sounds like you guys are using a combination of a design team and some custom tools to do this. And if you're doing this study and you're showing the client with, through visualization how this is going to work, how does it actually work when you go into these existing buildings with their infrastructure? Because it sounds like you know, you the, the stuff that you're plugging in can be of a higher standard than the existing building. But is there any effort gone to kind of retrofitting the existing building to come up to a certain level so that you guys really are, you know, raising the bar for every building that you touch? Is that the goal too? Yep, that is 100% the goal. Basically, 
we we know full well that there is some level of investment in the the internal infrastructure to meet uh, the demands for a thirty year long you know timeless space that mm-hmm. basically you can continually have a flex space for. Um, part of our process in assistance with our partners, which are like minded architects engineers, basically lighting consultants, things uh, acoustical consultants, um, is to consult and frankly <clears throat> enhance those properties. So that one-time investment truly is a one-time investment. And I wouldn't call it an, a substantial investment. Mm-hmm. Our, our position in general is that the interior infrastructure can be done with some level of simplicity, just adding on to features that the current uh, structure has. Mm-hmm. But once that, uh, that capital expenditure is done, the hope is that it's not have to be thought of again and again and again. Right. It's kind of set and set, set and settled and done. Yeah, I can imagine that would be... That would be amazing, right? Because then it it gives the own building owner peace of mind, but it also kind of reinforces right. that this building asset is like there are costs to owning that business, right? It's not just simply holding a, a shell that people then lease out, and and you you want to get out of the kind of churn of installing and tearing and installing and tearing. You want to get exactly. into something that is a lot more of a smooth process over the thirty years that you're talking about. We don't want people to to build an infrastructure space where they're doing this, this we call it kind of the white box plus scenario mm-hmm. is the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. It's not a white box plus for office. It's a white box plus for a property or an asset to always be flexible for any program. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as an architect myself, I, it's interesting to see the trend over the years, especially in education uh, that right. more and more flexibility is what is actually needed because they don't know there's so many times now where we're going into an existing school to modernize it for a STEM program, right? And you're, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. And, or, and what could that mean? That could mean a lot of things, right? It could mean robotics. It could mean a number of, of different things that have a different set of requirements. But ultimately, it's kind of weird, right, to think of as an architect that you're going to go in and design warehouse space because that's actually what they need because that's the most flexible thing. Like it just needs, you need to be able to pull power from anywhere. Right. You need to be able to support that volume of air with HVAC. And if it's going to get subdivided into smaller pieces later, okay, like it still needs to support the larger container. Um, exactly. and, and so yeah. it's a, it sounds to me like you guys are kind of on, on a similar trajectory like that, but with lots of different owner types for different, because there's lots of different potential use cases here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're thinking of the, the stuff that you're putting into this place more, more like furniture than architecture it sounds like it's more like plug and play it's more adaptable over time you move it in you move it back out reconfigure it it, it is it is purely modular um it is it is all plug and play uh, i would say there is there is no level of permanency when it comes down to this i i like that because it's you guys are thinking about it at different levels i think one of the things that i we talked about on a previous show with kat dovjenko was purpose-built modular architecture with a finite timeline like it doesn't Mm -hmm. need to last and you guys are taking a different approach where you're saying no it needs to last uh for a longer period of time but it it reconfigures over that time to potentially serve different uses i don't know is that a good way to say it not only does it 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 can reconfigure but it doesn't have to have one owner i mean there is a reality here there the circular economy of I'd say products is very important. Mm-hmm. And there are there are needs out there uh that other organizations, um, nonprofit organizations, even those that fall outside the traditional commercial field, uh, can utilize, you know, purposely well-built sustainable products that may be secondhand, but are under, you know, levels of warranty and at some level of uh of I'd say acceptance and and awareness that can be used. And so mm-hmm. for us, whether if you want to modify your space, that's fine. If you don't need your stuff, that's fine too. Let's use it for something different. Mm-hmm. There, there is, there is um, so much out there that's getting discarded. Yeah. Um, a good quality product that's just getting wasted at this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's really unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people just don't have uh, swing space to, to keep it while they're getting rid of it to somebody who needs it, they don't know, they don't want to deal with that process. They don't want to deal with the negotiation and the haggling and the logistics and all those things. So are you guys 
kind of offering that as a service as well? Or are you just purchasing it from them and then doing that work on your own? So the reality is our, we believe in our mission so strongly that we will give back a majority of those profits um, to the client because we want them to want to give to it up, not mind. to throw it yeah. away. Exactly. And I think there's one really important thing that's missed there. Not only do they not have swing space, they actually don't know what they have. <laughs> they're, true. They're, there is no tried and true. And we did this research study um, last year. I, I do recall in that one company and this very, very uh, uh, in-depth research knew what they had in their space. Wow. Which is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, yeah. We try to carry it a little bit further that you know what you have. You know when you installed it. You know its, it's actual uh, awareness, um, where it came from, uh, sustainable properties, and frankly... If you want to get rid of it, just shoot us a note. Wow. <laughs> Paying us. It seems like there's a huge potential there. Maybe you guys are doing this too, but when you're doing these in-depth studies and kind of taking stock of all this to give them an idea of what their environmental impact is as a as an entity, right? Because yeah. if they don't know what they have, they don't know what their impact is either. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. There's There's been such a huge push for the new, new, new. Let's buy the best product. And this even goes for, for sustainable products. Let's buy the, the best sustainable product we have. Mm-hmm. There's little understanding of, um, you know, what do we have current stock? Like what's sitting in our space? Is it useful? Is it a good quality product? There's just, there's always that perception of, of the now, 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 the new built. Um, it is, it is kind of tough. It's really tough. Are there any other kinds of trends that you guys are really noticing that you would put out there as things that people should be paying attention to when it comes to how companies are using office space or, or work environments and what those changes have been? Definitely. There is that, that overall study of, you know, what is the office these days? Sure. And there's a lot of opinions on that. And honestly, it's, it's something I don't want to focus too much on, but we all know the office is changing. But what I'm trying to ping on is that what's going to happen with all the leftover space that's going to sit there. We're not going to have uh you know, an 80% uptick of other companies that want office space of smaller scale to infill that space. So what are property owners going to do with all that empty space? And so the huge push here is uh, first and foremost, data collection of the spaces that are available. What's really, what's really is open in the market. um, And believe that it's, it's actually um, very limited these days, the data collection, Um, digitization, those, those, the digital footprint of those spaces and understanding what currently resides there is also just as important. But I see the trend now is the perception of, you know, I just don't own an office space or a shopping mall. I own an asset. And what can I do with that asset is definitely coming forward. And the utilization of the uh, surrounding property within the lot is, is really important as well. We've learned so much about parking lots, but um, <laughs> you can see that people's um, seller floors um, are being uh, leased out to um, warehouse facilities mm. because uh, while there is a decent level of uh, industrial buildings um, that are out there, um, some people don't need to rent a full building to store. Yeah. Um, so they're taking you know the first level or the the seller level of these spaces and actually saying, oh well, we we are not us- using this for anything. Let's use this for. Um, you know, a last mile delivery spot or uh, a warehouse spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those properties are, you know, they can be a multifamily space. They can be a, right. uh, a, a retail mall space. It can space be space doesn't care, right? It doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And we have to stop thinking about that. It's, it's, it's really, you know, you have a building, you have an asset. What can you do with that asset? It's not that you, you own a retail building. What can, what other retail space can you have here? It seems like there's additional layers of, usefulness in this too where not only an owner knowing what they've got and what their kind of overall asset tabulations are and all those things but it seems like this is great data for a community to know or for a city to know Mm -hmm. um, because it really helps them understand what are the kinds of things that we can attract to this community Um, there's a lot of people moving around right so how can we leverage data to understand what kinds of businesses we should be targeting to move here. And if you guys are actually putting different potential use cases in spaces that people normally see as a single type of use, that opens up a world of opportunity for attracting 
new business to your community. Absolutely. I, I'm definitely looking forward um, to the time coming soon of when New York City will be um, taking a second look at uh, affordable housing and uh, residential use mm. in Manhattan. Yeah, And um, they're doing so on the premise of uh, adaptive reuse of their buildings. And I'm super excited for that because yeah. that'll open up a window of studies um, that we'll be able to support and, uh, and hopefully implement. Yeah. So any, any kind of parting thoughts, uh, kind of going back to the, the problem statement of this wildly vast 30,000 municipalities out there with, with potentially different regulations. I mean, obviously there's some crossover there, but kind of going back yeah. to your article and takeaways from that and, and maybe where you guys are headed now that you kind of have this uh, sad understanding <laughs> of the state of the mm. of the environment, well, I mean, what's next? If, there, if there's any part, it goes back to my message. Um, I think the design the design industry needs to set their own bar, one hundred percent, and not wait around for others to tell them what it is. Exactly, set the highest bar you possibly can. That's a common theme. I mean, that on this podcast, in the, a lot of the speaking that I do, is like we we have to come to the realization that we are all in this together, and we are bred so competitively in school. I mean, obviously, this has implications all the way back to the way design professionals are educated and licensed and all of those things. But uh, it it really is an opportunity for the community of architects or for the profession of architecture and engineering and construction to create these kinds of standards together so that we don't have to spend all the time trying to figure this out if you mm -hmm. go to a slightly different location right and it there's so much benefit to that but it also takes a lot of work it does um there are companies out there like ours mm -hmm. that are trying to do that so the second message is don't try to reinvent the wheel yeah don't be afraid of technology find a partner yeah find a partner partner together work together to do so um you're not working solo. You, you have a team of individuals that want to help. You just need to embrace it and encourage new ideas. Technology is not adversarial. It is supportive. It's, it's supposed enabler. to augment your profession. Right. right. And, and if, there's, if there's a parting note on that one, you know, I come from a world and, and from this level of comfort that was very traditional for quite a long time. And until, until I really opened my eyes to, for one, where we are in in this industry as well as where we are uh with this environment mm -hmm. and for two truly technology is supportive 100 percent. let's invest partnerships with them um i don't know i just i just i wasn't i wasn't able to 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 look at it until now it's yeah. pretty amazing well thank you for the work that you guys are doing i think it's incredible to it, it seems i know you guys are a business and you're going to do an amazing amount of work with this, but it also has a, a level of selflessness to it that I find refreshing because it really, it, for, to open yourselves up to create a platform that you want to partner with others to solve these problems um, is is incredibly selfless on a level. So I, I appreciate that you guys are doing no. that. So. No, thank you. Where can people find out more about what you guys are doing? So we can put those links in the show notes, but I would love them. I would love for them to hear them as well from you. Well, go onto our, our website, which we'll probably post on this link, but it's kanoa.supply. If you sign up for our mailing list, we'll, we'll post you uh, probably every month or so updates of where we are and what mm -hmm. we're doing. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram, um, all having uh, various means and methods of messaging uh, to sign up for all three. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's basically it. Yeah, one, one thing I'll just last note here is especially on your Instagram account, I noticed you guys have a lot of kind of inspiring messages to mm -hmm. gather the, the troops, right? I, I appreciate that too. It's not all about you. It's not all about the PR. It's not all about the updates, but it's like, here's, here are things we should be thinking about together. And uh, that's a, it's a great attitude. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Lance, thank you so much for your generosity and your time and keep up the amazing work. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. 
This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.